Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Team Human is free, but if you have the resources to support the show, it would help us out a lot. Plus, as a full team member, you get access to bonus content, our community Discord channel, regular online salons with our guests, and free or discounted tickets to our Team Human live events. Most important, you'll keep our editor fed and ad-free show on the air. So go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others, like Kristen Tingle, Diane Day Kim, Tantric Suicide, DJ Gonzalez, and Abian Prince, and play for and with Team Human. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a place for people to program our collective reality together instead of being programmed by institutions that have stayed long past their welcome. We are not simply reacting to stimuli, but responding to one another. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the journalist behind the Garbage Day newsletter about web culture and host of the Content Minds podcast, Ryan Roderick. No one on the internet can ever pretend like they're not. They're constantly aware of themselves. And so all of the art that happens there has to be self-aware in some capacity. Ryan's going to bring us up to date on the current state of meme play. It's not too late to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm more than meme human. I'm team human, and so are you. Today's conversation got me thinking a lot about the early internet and how open and free it felt back then. You know, before the internet was even the internet, Al Gore was talking about the possibility of an information superhighway connecting educators and researchers with one another as well as one another's work. We never thought about it in terms of destinations. It was more about the journey, the search, the connections. If there were places online, if you could even call them that, 
they were really just these repositories of files. One of the first times I was on the net, I remember I was looking for some song lyrics and I did some gopher searches. The gophers were these, it was the simple command line. You just type something in and, and, and seek it out on the net. And I ended up downloading the files I needed from a server that was in Tel Aviv. And there was no sense of place. It's not like I, I went there. There was no thing. It was just these, these words. And the same is true for, for, IRC and Usenet, the early chat and bulletin board services online. Even though we were pinging messages back and forth to one another and something pretty close to real time, we were all just kind of passing through the text-only interface. It helped convey this sense of, of impermanence, of having created these little temporary autonomous zones in the ether that were composed entirely of the people who happened to show up at that moment in time. There was something that felt itinerant about all this activity. It reminded me of what it was like to be in the theater, which was my original life and career, where you just gather with a troupe for a few months, become co-workers and family and even lovers, and then you just disperse to everyone's next project. So we all learned kind of how to recognize each other as part of this great big migratory meta-community that was capable of forming deep bonds over a single weekend performance and then maybe never seeing each other again. And the early text-only internet, it kind of, it reminded me of that. It reminded me of, of Judaism with its restriction on graven images and even of the early Israelites who were essentially Bedouin. They were always on the move. I remember I wrote a piece for the Australian in around 1993, and I named us, us internet people, digital nomads. And I suggested that we might be the new Jews. There was something about maintaining a text only tradition and engaging on a network in these provisional ways and enjoying a, a culture based on the sharing of data and the exchange of ideas. It seemed to retrieve, you know, the best things about the Jewish tradition. What might a society built on these principles bring us that the later, more sedentary civilization of agriculture and land ownership and domination couldn't? And that's why I was so disappointed by the web. The, the World Wide Web had this flat, image-based interface, and along with, like, the pointing and clicking, it felt fundamentally different to me. Literacy was no longer a prerequisite for participation. You know, participation wasn't even a prerequisite for participation, if you know what I mean. Interactivity came to mean pointing and clicking on stuff on a website rather than sharing one's thoughts and ideas through language or even just sharing one's files. I mean, yes, the World Wide Web was something that traditional media companies could understand. It looked more like television. But at the expense of something else, it was as if the, the introduction of the homepage, it was important and it was convenient, but it was also potentially... I don't know, maybe the disaster that really hit the web. Initially, homepages were just 
the, a server's way of indicating what files were there. It was an easy way of doing what we used to do with text-based searches. So that server in Tel Aviv with all the song lyrics could put up one big page with all the song titles, and I could just click on one to call up another page with the lyrics on it. So it made everything easier to see and access. But then people started putting additional notes and documentation on those web pages. So instead of it just being a list of songs, there was information about the institution or the person who collected them and maybe some links to other places that also had lyrics files. But then beautifully at first, people started building their own homepages, sharing their achievements or their favorite recipes, pictures of their dogs and Beanie Babies collections. People had their own places online to maintain and receive guests and and call home. And the creativity that poured out of people onto the web in the next five or 10 years was really fantastic. But it also changed something about the net forever. Just as sedentary living gave rise to terrific civilizational advances, it also domesticated human beings, separating us from nature and giving us territory to defend. It erased our memory of migrating with the seasons. And instead of working with nature and moving around to find the best food or water, we settled in one place and made the land produce what we wanted when we wanted it. And as many scholars have noted, this is also likely when we shifted from the matriarchal or partnership societies to more male-dominated ones. And I think it's a lot like the Nets emphasis on place and permanence and how that gave rise to all those metrics of the attention economy. It's like eyeball hours and click counts and stickiness and intellectual property. There was this land grab of domain names, which, you know, was an appropriate activity for the digital frontier, right? That's a metaphor for settlements and business plans. Instead of surfing the net, we were staking our claims. And I don't think, though, the web doesn't have to go away. It's not all bad. It's brought billions of people online who may never have felt safe or secure in that untethered, ethereal realm we used to call the internet. And it's created ways for countless writers, artists, scholars to present themselves and their work in a context they develop quite independently. But it's not the only way to play out there, you know? As I look at the activities to which young people in particular are gravitating, from TikTok to all those new audio room apps, I'm seeing more comfort in the temporary, itinerant placelessness of old school networking. I think that's a healthy trend, particularly in a world where many of the places people have been counting on are likely to change. The holiest first five books of the Bible for Jews, the Torah. They end before the Israelites reach Canaan. The story leaves them out in the desert, having escaped from Egypt, but not yet having set up shop in the promised land. And I always looked at that as a hint for how life really works. We can build foundations and pretend we own a place, but none of that possession is durable. Online and off, we are forever Nomads. You know, I was one of the the first people to talk about viral media and memes and all that. And I was 
you know, really enthusiastic about them at first as little countercultural weapons that, you know, anybody anywhere can put a meme together and the mainstream news wouldn't be able to help but show it. I, I used to talk a lot about the Rodney King tape as the first media virus and how that empowered a community to express what was happening to them in a way that traditional media never would have allowed with all of its gatekeepers and top-down editorial control. But, you know, over time, I got a bit less enthusiastic about memes, particularly as a metaphor for humans, that human beings are just these sort of machines that get infected with a meme and then we repeat and spread the meme until it gets replaced by another. There was this, you know, the, this sense of, of passivity or of humans as programmable that really bothered me. And I'd really forgotten you know, I'd forgotten that my original interest in memes was really more as a form of content analysis, as a way of understanding Bart Simpson and Michael Jackson and Madonna and the way that they mutate. It was, it was a fun filter, a fun uh, metaphor in a way for how ideas spread and mutate through a culture. And I was reminded of this when I went to the Meme of the Moment Festival in New York last month, and I got to hear Ryan Broderick explain some of the wilder mimetic mutations of the past few years. So I invited him to uh, come on Team Human and uh, talk to us about memes and culture and everything else. I think you'll really get a kick out of him. I just want to jump right in. So the thing that was so fascinating to me about watching you at this meme event that I just saw you at, which was called Meme, I always forget, Meme in the Machine? No. Meme in the Moment. Meme in the Moment. At the Meme in the Moment event, which is what restored a lot of my faith in things. I feel like over the last 20 years or something, since I wrote Media Virus, I've gotten away from the content you know, all this great content analysis and looking at things and deconstruct, I mean, as a kid, deconstruct Lost in Space and what does it have that's different from Star Trek and what are these two universes and all all that stuff, you know, and then the early internet or even the pre-internet when the, the Simpsons and all this mimetic content and Rodney King and OJ Simpson and Tanya Harding and all these media things were happening and we were calling them viruses and Somehow I got, I don't know, sidetracked or correctly taken away from that, all that thinking about content into thinking about the platforms and the business and the industry and, you know, the technology. It seemed more serious. But I went to that thing that you guys are doing. And this is, you know, one of the first post COVID events I've been to. And it's live and there's people and young people and excited, cool looking people laughing, almost like it's a night of stand up or slam poetry or something. But it's people talking about memes and content. And you did such a fun, you know, what could pass for a college lecture in some places or a true stand up comedian's act in other places and both, you know, and it was like, oh, yay, this is fun and it matters, right? I mean, and that's the part that I'm still wrestling with now. It matters, right? I think so. <laughs> I think. I think it matters only in the sense that, like, to understand anything these days, you have to know – well, you – okay, you have the option to know 20 to 30 years of references that have built to this. Or you could just totally ignore it. But I think – I'm always weary of being like, the internet matters because that's when you start to get, like – 
the really weird gatekeepy kind of vibe that was very popular 10 years ago. Yeah. But I do think for the for the first time in my life, there are more people who seem to be totally cool with internet culture as a concept than ever before. In fact, like at that event, I I went out into the crowd and I yelled like, do people know what other kin are, which is like an internet subculture where you think that like inside your soul is like a wolf or a dragon or something. Okay, so then there were other kin. This was a few years after sort of the goth wave. If you're not familiar with, who, who knows what other kin are? Anybody here? Okay. Well, for anyone who doesn't, I like to think of them as the inverse of furries. Furries wear the animal suits on the outside. Other kin like to use the power of blogging to explain that they're like dragons or wolves on the inside. Here's my favorite example of other kin art. And this is a man violently transforming into a Charizard. And I, this is from a DeviantArt account, and I love this. I, there's another one that I, could, I didn't want to share where it's this, but a cow, and the utter transformation process is horrible. So I didn't include that. <laughs> and people clapped and knew. And I was like, okay, wow. COVID has really been rough for all of you. You've spent way too much time online. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. You're finding out about other kin and manifesting and exactly. all this stuff. And, and also, I've been to events like that in the past before COVID and many years ago, actually. And this one felt those events felt kind of like a LinkedIn meetup. It was like you put your Twitter handle on a name tag and you like, you know, you try to talk to the Gawker writers who aren't mean to you. Uh, right. This one felt different. This felt like a, a subcultural thing. This felt like a, a, a DIY punk show or it felt like a, a Comic Con or it felt it, it felt like we had tapped into something which was very exciting to me. What were some of the main memes that you tracked? For uh, for people that night. So that night I was focusing on online occultism and online mysticism and mainly the drama that happens in those communities. I, I'm like infinitely fascinated with message board drama. And I now sort of have this thesis that like all of society is just various message board drama. Yeah. I also noticed this like trend over the period of like particularly the pandemic where people were beginning to like ascribe like certain kinds of like spiritual or otherworldly concepts onto the internet. And obviously once that happens, drama happens. And so it is kind of like this funny mix of like interesting and weird and dark, and it's been going on forever. And I'm always like really fascinated in the internet trends that are beyond platforms, because that means like we've clearly tapped into something very like human. And so part of me started to think like, okay, like did like the pagans in like pre-Roman society, were they having petty fights about what to do with bones. Like, have we tapped into something very human? Like, we're always going to have fights about, like, did you cast a curse on this person you don't like or whatever? Like, it felt... I'm, I also grew up around Salem, Massachusetts. So, like, uh -huh. you know, this is, this is, yeah, this is yeah. part of my culture, I suppose. But, like, I don't know. It's been an interesting sort of thing to watch mainstream internet users get pulled into these worlds. What's an example of a good spat that you've kind of deconstructed? I think the best one is definitely <laughs> what was called at the time uh, Bone Gazi, mm -hmm. uh, which was a queer Tumblr witch went into a Facebook group and told everybody that they had procured human bones and they were selling them. And then that went viral on Tumblr in, a, in the form of screenshots and a call-out post. And then... The Tumblr witch was eventually arrested, and it was revealed that they had robbed a black cemetery. This was a white witch that had robbed a black cemetery in New Orleans. 
it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And it was one of those like crazy internet stories where it bubbles out of the uncomfortable corner of the internet and it uh-huh. happens to find a way to grab every single cultural third rail it can, you know? And she had really done this. She had really gone and dug into a graveyard and pulled out bones. That is what she was charged with. Yeah. The the witch, they were named Ender Darling. They found human bone fragments, and it, it, it appears they came from a cemetery and were not procured ethically, which is a, a, a common issue with uh, these corners of the internet. <laughs> and it's an interesting thing, though, because, you know, you found there's a lot of bone stories that happen online. A lot of it's almost like this weird red flag of like, oh, no, it's bone people. There's bones involved. There's, you know, yeah, like that kid. That kid you found who's got like this giant bone collection, or he was going to be a bone expo- exposer, but he turned into a bone collector, right? Yes. Uh, John's Bones <laughs> is what he's on TikTok and he's a osteological entrepreneur. So this has like a very good like GameStop pump Gen Z twist to it. And this was recent. This was last month. He went on TikTok and was like, look at all the bones I have. Would you like to buy some bones? And then people were like, I don't think those are ethically sourced bones. And then he got in a whole fight with them. And it's interesting because like that sort of cycle used to take a month, maybe two months. Now with TikTok moving so fast, it can happen in the span of a couple days. And it is one of those things where it's like, it's interesting that this has happened on, by my count, at least three or four different. Like, if you want to get really wild with it, there's a, there's even more. Like, there's a guy on Reddit who c- cooked and ate his own leg. Like, there's just there's just like this thing that keeps happening. Did he really do it, or he claimed to? Okay, so the story that I under- as I understand it, <laughs> is that he had his leg amputated for medical reasons, and he was right. like, "What do I do with my leg?" So he uh, <laughs> he took the meat from his leg and he cooked it into tacos, and he ate it, and his friends ate it too, and they knew they were eating his leg. But apparently when it first when he first shared the story, he didn't properly explain that they knew right. they were eating his leg. Um so that, you know. Oh, that would be interesting. To yeah. have a party, you know, your recovery party. Here's a taco. It's me. Here's here's my leg. Yeah. It's me. Um and there's just like there's all kinds of examples like this. It's it's very strange. And the funnest thing about it to me though is that you end up with a group of regular people or friends sitting around, you could say something like, oh, it has a very GameStop pump Gen Z quality to it, <laughs> which just saying that is like the the modern pop nerd equivalent of like, you know, Chicago manual or APA manual of style dissertation where they put like the little parentheses, you say something and then they say, you know, in the neo-Hegelian post-Platonic sense, yes. you know, see, you know, see <laughs> Kant, you know, you know, 1623 or something. And it's like, we now are walking around with that almost quasi-academic scholarly cache in our brains. Yeah. It is really fascinating. We're like, I mean, okay, so the internet, you could call it a bunch of different things, but like one really good metaphor is like it's a library of everything, right? And it lives now in our pocket. So in a weird way, we're all kind of like deranged librarians and we are all sort of beginning to talk like that, which I think is interesting. But then there's also now like an entire, what feels like to me, race to sort of outline the trends as they're happening. Like there seems to be such a a content economy in a way of being able to say like this trend is happening on TikTok. The, the the milk crate challenge is happening right now and it will last until this day and then it'll be over. And part of me thinks it's maybe anxiety about having just too much to keep track of. But the other part of me thinks that like we had these things back in the nineties, in the eighties, like trend watching that kind of fascination. 
but now everyone can do it. So it's like we've democratized the uh, what is it like the the Mad Men era of like trying to come up with like what's the next trend. But now anyone can do that. So we're we're all sort of doing it. Right at the same time, that's why there were real people from like the advertising public relations industry showed up at this thing, you know, one of the hosts and two of the people presenting. It's like, you know, whatever that is, you know, Interpublic and Ogilvy and Mather, this is their, or was their bread and butter, right? So what do they, what do they even have over the 15 year old kid who's aware of all the trends on TikTok? I mean, kind of nothing. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And also like, this isn't talking about that specific sort of section of meme in the moment, but when I've done consulting work or sort of talked to people who do it, it is really interesting how they feel to me of a level above like the culture still where they're talking about stuff from like, oh, okay, so that was like a year ago or two years ago. That doesn't really, f- and maybe it's worth it for them to not move as fast as the rest of us. But to me, like the micro trends, like, okay, the word chuggy was like big for two, three weeks. Then the New York Times wrote about it in a kind of fizzled way. And now it's become like a weird punchline and it won't make any sense by next year. But that to me is the more exciting space to be in the, like the micro memes that are happening every couple minutes because <laughs> they're, I, I think they're just more interesting. It's kind of, it's funny. It's like, it's like a stock market. You know, there are these guys that do stochastics and stochastics is really interesting. So you kind of find the, the fractal shape of a stock over a long period of time. And then you find out how that same shape on a particular stock is repeated in each of the micro moments of the stock, you know? And so you're looking at that little teeny shape that's, that's available like the, and those are what the, the ultra fast traders, you know, with the machines are doing is looking at, okay, over a period of three seconds, the stock will go through the same shape that it does in three years. Let's, let's use that. 0.01 0.01 cent difference and make a zillion dollars. That's funny. I have never thought about that, but that is basically exactly what I do on a daily basis, but with cultural stuff. Like I, I was doing, I was working on a thing the other day about the, the milk crate challenge and how it was a meme that surfaced in black Twitter. It was quickly gentrified. And then it became the like, Doctors are saying, don't do the milk crate challenge because it's dangerous. And then like celebrities- Wait, do you want to tell are- people the milk crate challenge in case they don't know it? Oh, okay. So by the time you hear this, it will probably have been completely extinct. But basically, it was a cultural trend that lasted a couple weeks where you would walk up uh, increasingly tall stacks of milk crates and then down again. And it started at like barbecues and backyard parties and it would travel on like Instagram video. And there was like world record milk crate challenge. And it was very cute. And it's like a really good summer meme. And then like a YouTuber, like a white YouTuber bodybuilder guy did it really, really badly and in a really boring way. And also he didn't do it on grass, which is important because like the the crates have to be able to slide. That's what makes it dangerous. Anyway, so he did it and everyone was like, (laughs) memes over, go home. And then I was trying to outline (laughs) like based on what I've seen before, like what would happen next. And for the most part, I was correct, which was you have the Washington Post interviewing doctors saying... People, don't do the milk crate challenge. You're going into the emergency room, obviously. And then you have the 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 white celebrities on Instagram doing like really bad versions of it. I saw one that was like some actress and she was trying to do it on like the Hollywood Boulevard. And then of course, it ends with TikTok literally banning the hashtag because it was too dangerous. 
Wasn't there ever a stage when people were doing it for charity? We didn't get to the charity stage. Oh. I think it was too it was too dangerous of a challenge to do. Right, that, like no no disease would would claim credit for it. Exactly. Um, but it was interesting that like every single time we do this in America, it pretty much follows the exact the exact same rules. Yeah, I know. And there are these, and it's interesting. So you're looking at the at the kind of the content, the content evolves and mutates in this particular way, and then ends in that way. And I've been looking at uh and it's funny because that was my original way of looking at media and back in the day you know i was analyzing like peewee herman and madonna and uh the oj simpson trial as memes as viruses that go through those either they try to mutate they keep trying to mutate in order to maintain interest and eventually they mutate themselves either into something else or they just die yeah. you know, and or they combine with someone else's and then then get new life somehow but then i start looking at the sort of the mimetic weather which is interesting to me too yes. so it's not the particular memes but like when um charlie sheen happened remember he was like the eye of the tiger or whatever tiger he went, blood yeah tiger blood yeah. right he was one of the first uh, it was a certain phenomenon that he was the first of this just the manic phase of mental illness manifesting in twitter to become this this crash wreck. He laid the, the groundwork for the Trump campaign. That he was, did. Yeah. Right. He did. Exactly. And when I was looking at that and doing, you know, I, I was the guy who they would call like, what the fuck is going on? What does this mean? <laughs> and I said, this was a response to the failure of the Iraq revolution. Remember when they had, or the Iran, there was Twitter Iran. There was this, it was sort of a, a, Terrier Square kind of a thing that happened in Iran on Twitter. And it was sort of this revolution and everyone was tweeting and we were all watching. It was like all these news reports about it. It was like super serious Twitter stuff of like the fate of a nation and all these people. And it was like right after that happened, it's like when the when the the wave comes to the shore and then goes back out again, there's like this empty moment and you know, in yes. the ocean when you're like waiting. And it's like Charlie Sheen just jumped into the standing wave and then was swept through. We needed something the opposite, something entertaining and and, and like a good Hank the Angry Dwarf populist crazy thing to kind of cleanse the palate, you know, and that's what Trump did, too. He jumped into the standing wave of the sort of post-Obama moment and boy, wrote yeah. it for everything it was worth. I think that's definitely true. I used to, uh, when I was like a young breaking news reporter, I would cover school shootings and <laughs> I was always really fascinated by what would go viral in America immediately after. And it was always stuff that was incredibly stupid or lighthearted mm-hmm. or pointless. And you still see this where like something like you could probably do an entire PhD dissertation on just the content that went viral during the American pullout of Afghanistan this month. The amount of sort of like petty Twitter beefs that are happening simultaneously. And I think I'm really glad you said the weather thing because like for for the last couple decades, the assumption has sort of been that like memes are like a form of like ideological genetics right it's sort of like the the, the right. thought gene and i don't think that's wrong but i do think the way they move the way they sort of like gather power i think have way more in common with weather patterns 
Totally, totally. And this is what, exactly, this is what the guys like Dawkins and a lot of these geneticists don't get. They put so much faith in the DNA and the structure and the code. And computer yeah. people love that because, oh, the code is your program and all. But as we actually know from biology, it's not just the code, it's the protein soup that the yeah. code is in, depends on which potentials come out. So a, a, a media virus, and always they used to come to me, oh, make us a media virus. It's like, you don't just make a perfect media virus in a vacuum. It's what is the neighborhood in which you're expecting this virus to survive and replicate? What's the cultural soup in which it's steeping? You know, and that's interesting. It's like that island where like, because of some weird quirk of history, like a pig got dropped off and then the pig became the dominant species of the island. And it's just like a pig island. That's sort of what it is where it's like, you can be the strongest, greatest lineage of pigs, but unless some sort of happenstance puts you on an island where you can dominate it, you're right. probably not going to become the Pepe the Frog meme that you think you could become. Like you right. sort of need that push. You do. And that's why I always wonder, you know, these Pepe the Frog memes or whatever. I mean, you look at a guy like Matt who did that meme. I mean, not that he got carried along with it until now with the yeah. NFTs, but it's almost random. To a point. I mean, I guess a Kardashian or whatever there, you know, or a Paris Hilton or a Britney Spears, there was something there. Yeah. I th so I, I have this conversation with my friend. We, we do a podcast together called The Content Minds. He sort of subscribes to an idea that I've heard a few other people talk about as well, which is sort of the uncanny valley of virality. The first time I ever heard it was to describe uh, Rebecca Black's Friday, which is a really interesting song because it is objectively a bad song, but it is also a good song. And this is the same sort of uncanny valley that gets you someone like Trump, where it, it gets you someone like Charlie Sheen. It gets you someone like Kanye West, where it's like you have to be good enough that 52% or 49% of the population is interested in you and not completely repulsed by you. And it's it's never the content. It's never like – the objectively good content that goes viral. It's always the stuff in the middle. It's always the, it's like the, the Rocky Horror Picture Show effect or the movie, the uh, Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Like you need that weird special sauce of high and low. It's, I it's also my theory of why Star Wars is so enduring because like you will never get a perfect trilogy of Star Wars. It's not possible. And that will, that argument will drive that fandom until the heat death of the sun. Because they will right. constantly fight about what Star Wars is. And without that, Star, Star Wars would disappear. But there's like this almost greatness to a Star Wars that, say, a Snakes on the Plane never had. No. And it's like – there's definitely like a spectrum of this like uncanny valley. <laughs> like the valley has, you know, <laughs> yeah. peaks and, and, and lows. But I do think you, you, you're never going to get a perfect thing if they even exist, right. to go viral in the same way you could. And this is also why I, I'm now seeing this more and more, like um, accusations that a lot of the fandom around BTS or K-pop bands is a little more manufactured than you think it is. And I wonder if it's to do with the sort of like polish. I don't want to get your podcast in a lot of trouble by going no, no, after no. BTS fans because they're pretty yeah. intense. But I do wonder like as media becomes more polished will it go less viral organically because it's just simply not as interesting as like a random tiktok a kid farts out by accident right but the interesting thing so so i had um michael nesmith on the show and i as a kid and i'll just admit this all right and just hate me if you want 
When I was a kid, when I was six years old, I liked the monkeys more than the Beatles. Me too. I watched the show. I did too. And the monkeys were, in many ways, the original reality TV. They were picked, these musicians from all different places, a couple of them weren't even musicians, brought together, put in this fake house, and then now you're a band, and we're yes. going to have music. And, and when I would watch Michael Nesmith on that show, as a six-year-old, I would still see he's... It's like Seinfelding. He's in there, but he's also signaling to us that he's not really there. Yes. He sees the circus. And it was like between that happening at the same time as Andy Warhol, I think the monkeys is closer to a high art, self-conscious media event than any earnest, let it be, nothing wrong with the Beatles, but, but it was meta on it. It was going meta already. Yes. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. You just like unlocked a bunch of memories of mine, but like that. So my family, we didn't have cable until like I was a teenager. So when I come after, come home after school, it was like bewitched the monkeys reruns and all in the family. And the monkeys were, the show was so fascinating because like, even as a kid, I was like, there's something very strange about this show because <laughs> all of them seem to know they're in the show. And I never yeah. encountered that before. Yeah. And then with the songs, the songs were also in this weird uncanny Valley where like they were not obviously Beatles songs, but they weren't bad either. Right. And they were in between. They were almost good. It was. It, I mean, it's kind of like Smash Mouth's All Star or something, where it's like mm -hmm. this song is more fascinating to me because it's it's not quite good, and yet it's better because it's not quite good. It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean the same way. I mean, you could argue the Grateful Dead has that appeal too. That everybody's listening. It's like, oh, you know, this does. In spite of the fact that it's psychedelic and mastery and all that, it also sounds like something that could be happening in a garage down the street. They're fumbling their way through this thing with all these bad notes that they hit. Uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> I mean, years later would manifest with me in like becoming interested in punk music, which was the ultimate sort of expression of I'm so aware of the fact that what is happening is ridiculous that like I can't ignore it it has to be part of it and then okay well how do we move on from there well we'll destroy things and we'll talk about you know we'll write songs about how much we hate touring and stuff like that yeah. and i think you know a lot of the the early manifestos of the internet after the utopian age where they're like the internet's punk rock and i, I watched a documentary where jelly biafra from the dead kennedys was like burning down a mcdonald's is very punk rock actually and mm -hmm. like the internet is inherently a punk space and i'm like yeah. oh you almost got it Yes, yeah. it is in the sense that no one on the internet can ever pretend like they're not. They're constantly aware of themselves. And so all of the art that happens there has to be self-aware in some capacity. But we've now seen that the internet is not punk. It's actually just like the ultimate monopoly. But the art there, I think, is that kind of feeling. It was. Punk. Yeah, I mean, it was. Well, because in the in the early stage, you can't play with a new medium without being conscious that, oh, we're playing with this new medium and screens within screens. And there was that whole thing about it. But, you know, it, it, it also reminds me of, you know, the Gen X, I was, you know, part of that early Gen X kind of meta, uh, sarcastic, removed, apathetic thing. And we thought, oh, well, you, no one's going to fool me. I'm never going to be a sentimental boomer. You know, I'm always right. going to have a little, hold a little of myself back and stay cynical. But I feel like, at a certain point, you you can push that cynicism through to a new a new naivete, you know, a new purity somehow. 
because you know, now we're just saying we're celebrating the cynicism with such romantic, you know, nostalgic love for cynicism. What is what is that? You know, it is really weird, and I think it also speaks to how complicated it has been to get a sense of like the Gen Z mentality, and it, I think that's why there there's so many like amateur like anthropologists trying to study these kids because millennials are like painfully neurotic and self-obsessed. I say this as one, I'm dead set in the middle of the generation and like they're sort of defined by individualism in a collective sense. Like we're sort of, we're constantly obsessed with what other people our age are doing. And yet we're sort of more focused inward. Like that's our sort of definition. And I think that a lot of that has to do with seeing Gen X grow up and be like, okay, like they're not doing anything. We've got to do stuff. But the stuff that we're doing is kind of selfish and weird uh, and usually just involves like a dating app or something, right? Like we're not or, – or a spreadsheet. But then Gen X has a way more collectivist mindset. Uh, and I was reading this really interesting piece a couple of years ago from like a leftist writer who was talking about like the the collectivist internet presence of Gen Z and how they – they're so good at memes because like they don't find – ownership particularly interesting they don't find individualism interesting they find like mass appeal interesting but not in ways that we traditionally think about it like they're not producing mass appeal art they're making weird art that a lot of them like even like olivia rodrigo the most famous singer in the world right now she's making stuff that sounds more like it would come from warp tour than it would Coachella, which, you know, so there's, there's a, there's a whole weird shift that's happening and no one like the Gen Xers think Gen Z is like them. The millennials think Gen Z is like aliens. Nobody knows what they are. And it's, I think it's because we don't, we're like making new ways to sort of deal with earnestness maybe right now. And like, that's like the work in progress is too complicated to put a, put a name for it yet. Yeah. You know, I get worried about, I mean, what we all do about generational categorization, just because there's. You know, uh, Timothy Leary was kind of a Gen Xer in a early boomer body. Or, you know, there's like yeah. all these, there's all these different sensibilities that emerge at different times. It's like, what's Frank Baum? What's this guy? What's that? But at, at the same time, you know, the those the original like uh, generational guys. I mean, have you read that book, The Fourth Turning? No. It's really scary. You know, these these guys, um, Howe and Strauss, the guys that came up with sort of the main original looking at the way generations go and comparing it to Jung and those 20-year generational cycles and all. But what they were saying was that right around 2020, there would be this confrontation between the millennial Gen Z and Gen Z generation and the World War II generation. So it's basically like AOC versus Trump. You know, fair. Yeah. It's going to come down. So the social justice warriors against make America great again, kind of against the MAGA sensibility, and that it has to get violent. That there's no, <laughs> there's no other way. That's interesting to me because, like, Gen Z, yes, they're like they're some of them are very woke. They want to save the world. Super cool. They don't have genders. Awesome. Great. But there's also a massive propensity for fascism among them. Like the, I don't know if you know about the Groyper mo- movement. No. So Groypers are a Gen Z far right movement that use like a very overweight version of Pepe the Frog as their mascot, and their most popular like de facto leader is uh, Nick Fuentes. He's like a really horrible uh, live streamer, and he he loves like making Holocaust jokes, and he's like very like Gamergate edgy. And their new thing 
is like they got thrown out of CPAC because they're all like like little like Gamergate kids. They storm CPAC because they don't think like Trump was right enough. Like they're 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 they're, yeah. they're further extreme than that. And so their new thing is completely dis like disrupting the Republican Party because they don't see it as they they call their movement like America First and like that's sort of their branding. But it it is it is funny that like there is this assumption that younger people are going to be more liberal, but because of like the last 20 years of internet use, many of them are very scary. (laughs) They're, they're not. And I I would even say that like young leftists aren't even that liberal because like they're, they're using the same language of like, like racist memes and, and, and making fun of like social justice warriors. Like it's way more complicated, which I I find more interesting to be honest. But you know, I, I, I can understand the, Young people being disappointed that Trump didn't follow through. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I wish he did and all that. But <laughs> Right. No, me neither. January 6th, he's up there. We're going to march in the Capitol. I'm going to be with you. Da, 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 da. If he had marched with them, arm in arm, right in front, like Martin Luther King, arm in arm with, with Rabbi Heschel in the, you know, walking down Fifth Avenue in the civil rights. If he went arm in arm with those guys and, and whatever, Josh Holly and, and yeah. whoever with him and they were in front, those cops would have backed away. Yeah. It would have happened, you know, and the fact that he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, you know, and, and I could see it being some young Gen Z extremist MAGA kid going, Hey, all right, we need, we need someone, we need Marjorie. We need someone willing to go to the mat. Yeah. And it's going to be, and what's interesting is it's going to be tough for them because to circle back to sort of something we, we talked about earlier is that like Trump had the uncanny Valley effect where he's like a demented old man who is funny to laugh at, but he's also super mean. So he's funny to laugh with. Mm. And he had like that secret sauce. Whereas, you know, Josh Hawley or Madison Cawthorn or any of these like younger far right people, Ben Shapiro, like they're not able to do that. They can't function on the on the two. Like Alex Jones can do it because right. he's like completely nuts and not wearing a shirt right. and screaming at poop in the middle of the street and like in a tank. But maybe you don't need someone to do it now. In other words, maybe Trump opened the the Overton window. You know, this for people don't know the Overton window is sort of what is acceptable speech and all that. And yeah. Trump through his unique qualities broke that open and spoke outside the box. And now that that's broken, you can have other people come in and appeal almost more acceptably and less less buffoonishly to the same stuff which we can now say which is you know whatever the 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 manga people feel they can say now i think that's possible it's a very weird time to be alive right now because like i feel like we're in like one of these great lulls of history for like a brief second where we're like we don't know what's about like, cause we still can't really go outside. We still really can't go back to normal. So this is all kind of theoretical. And like, that's been the most interesting stuff for me to write about because I'm like, there's a million ways this could go. And we still don't know. Like we could like this young far right movement, if they don't have enough energy, do they, do they make it to the other side of the pandemic? And if they do, like, are they huge? Are they small? Are they a joke? Like we don't know. And there's such anger. It's it's a different kind of thing. It's, like, uh, it's 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 there's rage. I I don't care. And this is the thing. People think I'm anti or pro-vax or anti-anti-vaxxer or anti-red. And I'm really not. I'm not. I, I, if anything, I 
personally empathize more with the working class people who have actual skills and do things and have gotten poo-pooed and and basket of deplorables by the neoliberal elite. I get that. I'm on there. I'm I want my kid to learn how to farm and how to do electricity and how to actual do stuff. I mean, so I'm 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 yeah. there. The part that bothers me um from what I see in this sort of right-wing media is the rage is the right. Is that uh, it's a stiffness and an anger that's just ah oh, come on man. I remember like uh, probably a year before the the pandemic had just started probably, and I was talking to a family friend, and he had had a few beers, and he was like ranting and raving at me about something that Trump was doing and how Trump was amazing and blah 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 blah. And I finally just got sick of it, and I was just like, okay, if Trump's so amazing, why are you angry all the time? And he. It, it, it was like the color drain out of his face. And then he like complained to my parents. <laughs> and it was like a whole thing, but it, you know, cause he was like a friend of my dad's or something. And we were having this conversation and, and, it, but to me, it's like, if Trump is your guy and he's doing all these amazing things or whatever it is, even like, like, why are you so angry? Just, and it gets, and the anger to me is, is the point. It's like, it's the entertainment. Like you want to be angry. Cause if you didn't want to be angry, like there's a million ways to do that. Like you don't have to, you, you don't have to even watch Fox news unless you want to be angry. Right. And so many of the people who are angry on both sides, you know, and then there's, this, there are, you know, intellectual social justice warriors in ivory towers who are being oh, paid sure. a couple of hundred thousand bucks a year to write you know, the most angry, just, you know, it's like to be a, to be a white housewife in America today, a, a white woman in your 30s or 40s in the middle class is got to be really hard, you know, and you've got an intellectual class of academics who are like blaming you for everything. You know? <laughs> it's like, or a white man for that matter. But, but you know what I mean? You could, you can, uh, you can see that, that rigid rage on, you know, all sides of the spectrum. Yeah, that's definitely true, and it's interesting. I've I've I, I've written a lot about cancel culture, as it's sometimes called. Yeah, and this year has been really a really interesting one. So, do you know about the main character of Twitter concept? No, and it's interesting. Cancel, and I love just the whole idea of cancel culture on the internet. We do cancel culture. That is what McLuhan would say. We do the we take the prior medium becomes the content of the new medium. You can't. Cancel on the internet. You cancel a television no. show. You cancel a TV show. You cancel a series. But what do we do on the net? We, we cancel. cancel. You know? Which, <laughs> an, infinite, an infinite content void and we cancel. So yeah. the, the tweet is from uh, Maple Cocaine. They, they tweeted in 2019 and they wrote, each day on Twitter, there is one main character. The goal is to never be it. Yeah. And I think it's actually yeah. a much more useful way of thinking about what we think about when we talk about cancel culture because it's not about morality it's not about justice i think we're we're far, far enough along into this so that we can all kind of say that what it is about is being the focus of enough trending algorithms and like weird content economies that crave blood that you are then in the front of one of these weather patterns that we started talking about like you are the person in the middle and what's crazy to me is that politically in america I think since Trump, it has become more powerful to be at the center of one of these things and try to make them happen to you. Right. And that's for the left and the right. Like if you can be the person who can survive the middle of the tornado and not die, you become 
you know, a YouTube streamer. You become right. like a YouTuber with like a million followers or something. So you basically submit to algorithmic scapegoating. And if you survive, yes. you live forever. Or you live at like a Long level <laughs> of like weird niche fame that like you can just live on ad revenue for like your adult life. Yeah. Well, you look at the way that was done before. So say that before the internet, say Monica Lewinsky was that, right? For maybe yes. more than a day. But she will always be in, at least as long as we're alive, you know, in a cultural memory, she'll always be able to get on an Oprah show or something. And I guess what you're saying is it's 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 a Warhol thing, but it's every day there's one or more people who go through the mill. And today it's you're saying because of interactive media, it's sort of a daily, almost like a Shirley Jackson lottery. You know? <laughs> yes. And like a really good example was this guy, uh, John Roderick, who became the bean dad at the beginning of the year. And I'm kind of obsessed with this story because I think it's so instructive of this culture where he tweeted a Twitter thread about teaching his daughter to open a can of beans with like a can opener. And then like thousands of people accused him of child abuse. And instead of apologizing or like backing down, he just like made a big joke about it. And then he was like kicked off the podcast he was doing. He like uh, had to delete his account and like issue a statement and people called him like all sorts of crazy shit. And now he has a Patreon where he's making like $14,000 a month or whatever it is. And it's just to me like the perfect example of this entire process where it's like survive the maelstrom. And if you don't commit suicide or like get evicted or whatever, and you can keep paying bills through it, you'll come out the other side as a creator, <laughs> like with a monthly supporter base. And it's very strange to me. And also a really good example is of, of this whole thing to tie it all together is Monica Winsky is on Twitter and she's great on Twitter. Because of course she's great on Twitter. She's already lived through Twitter in the 90s. Right. And you can't do any – just she's impervious. There's nothing you could do to Monica Lewinsky to upset her at this point. Because, you know, I mean, she's like immune. She's had like this huge dose. It's like, a, you know, a dose of, of immune therapy living through the Clinton era. There's nothing. Can't touch her. Can you imagine what kind of – I mean, first, what kind of therapy she's probably gone through. But how – what – the strength of character she must have for living through something that, you know, we can't even, we can't even imagine. But there's the the part that bothers me. And and some of my friend journalists kind of do this when their stuff's kind of not quite getting the attention that they wanted to get. They almost try to set up a situation where an editor doesn't let them say an editor cuts like one sentence from their 800 word piece and oh oh now this magazine is censoring me i'm gonna <laughs> leave these evil editors i'm gonna set up my Substack for my true people who want to hear the oh. true truth and their work yep. always gets so bad after that because frankly all of us need editors we need or at least a community we all suck by ourselves you know that's what editors were for not to censor you but to make you better yeah, I know these guys that you're talking about. Um, I call them like the khaki pants mafia sometimes. Uh, there's yeah. a whole collection or the dark enlightenment folks who like they think the edgiest thing in the world is being a centrist who doesn't really like trans people. And it's like, oh, really? That's that's the truth. That's the truth that corporate media doesn't want you to talk about is that like you're uncomfortable. They're going to tre- uh, teach critical race theory. at your very expensive college. I, mean, I could <laughs> go on. I could go on and on about these people. But uh, you're right, because they it is very funny that the minute they don't have some kind of establishment to rail against, the wind kind of goes out of their sails and they go back to this same idea that like. Tucker Carlson goes to and Trump goes to and everybody goes to, which is like create the like establishment that is like not letting you tell the truth and fight it 
it's propped up by like every other part of our media apparatus in America because I, I actually don't really know why. I don't know how we got to this right. point in terms of just like I mean, I guess the Iraq war probably didn't help and like all the yeah. everything that's happened since nine eleven, but it is very strange that like that's the only way towards relevancy now. Yeah, but I wonder where they learned it. Sometimes I think, and and I, I'm trying to give equal time here, sometimes I think they learned it from the left and the whole postmodern critical race theory kind of community that it could get to the point where, and I wrote a piece about this, it's like the subject-object relationship in a sentence of English is intrinsically oppressive. who's the subject who's the object you're acting on i picked up the pencil you know you say all right so the pencil is the the object you know but now if it's humans i work for you or i told i gave him this and it's like oh so you're i'm the i he's the him and once that happens you know that now i'm now i'm dominator so if we're understanding everything in terms of who's dominating who who's the subject of whom who's colonialized whom you know, when we're all basically disempowered dweebs in a post-colonial nightmare, you know, we're trying to say who's colonizing whom. Sorry, you're going to end up with that with that model. And then these these folks on the right are using pretty much the same schema um, to look at their own yeah. oppression. Whoever's victimized most. Yeah, it's actually really interesting that like one of the architects of the critical race theory hysteria. His name is Christopher Rufo. He is the guy who got it into Trump's face and then Trump issued the executive order and there's sort of like a whole timeline there. And his like big idea was to use the tactics of the left to do this. So really his yeah oh, so he, it was conscious. This is super conscious. And he like wrote about it before they did it, which makes me think that this isn't him just like taking credit. It's like right. he's like, here's what we're gonna do. His idea was to um to make the brand name of critical race theory toxic in the mind of the average American by associating with any random thing they could. And he wanted to use the tactics that he saw within social justice circles of going after, you know, systemic oppression or intersectional feminism and things like that. He wanted to destroy that in like make someone so tired of hearing about it, they're just like, get it away from me. And he succeeded quite well. I mean, it was it was kind of an amazing project from like a really evil standpoint but it, it it was totally conscious from the from the left i think do you had your own weird brush with internet horror when they, you wrote some article and then the, someone got really mad at you and they chased you off uh they chased you off a platform okay so i've <laughs> been the center of a few of these the last really big violent one was with QAnon. uh right. at the very beginning of covid i, I wrote about covid and QAnon and they they did come after me and a lot of them were like spreading conspiracy theories about me and my connections to the media and stuff like that um and there's always like the attempt to dox and and there's been a few instances since uh going freelance that that's happened in smaller doses but what i found is that like a lot of the cancel culture stuff or whatever you want to call it like the being targeted thing to knock on wood here, it doesn't happen as much when you're not attached to a massive company. Cause that's, which I think has actually been really interesting to me is that like, I'm writing basically the same stuff, but the fact that like, I'm not associated with a brand means that like, I'm not an, an interesting target for a lot of like, you know, groipers or QAnon right. folks or whatever. Cause it would stop with you. They can't take down CNN or MSNBC or something. It's just this dude. I used to get attacked all the time for everything I wrote when I was like working for companies directly. 
And it was really interesting to me to see that all disappear. And I think one of the reasons that disappeared is probably because I'm just like not as interesting of a target just on a power level. But I do think there is like a whole interesting dynamic that isn't talked about a lot, which is that like canceling on the internet or going after people on the internet is more about getting companies or brands to respond than it is like anything to do with the people in the middle of it, which I like, cause you're not going to go try to cancel like a random person. You're going to like call their job, you know, like you're going to, you want some sort of retribution that way. There's some sort of economic value to that. And so without the ability to do that, like I'm not going to fire myself from my own newsletter. <laughs> I mean, I might go into right. hiding, but like, it is interesting to me that when you've removed that dynamic, all of a sudden you're not interested. Right. I was going to say, unless you're really big, but even if you are, let's say like um, Manuel Lynn Miranda or Bo Burnham, they're not just attacking Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham's on Netflix. So it's like attacking him. You can get him so that, oh, they won't do another. You got him in trouble with that. Or, or Manuel Lynn Miranda. It's like, oh, well, there's the whole like Broadway movie industry that he's a part of. He's not just, you know. Me or yeah. you or, you know, Matt Taibbi or somebody on Substack, just some dude, you know? No, exactly. Like the whole point, I think, and this to me is also interesting where it's like the internet is like connective. And so the point is to remove as many connections from somebody as possible. That is an apolitical idea. Like you see this on both sides if if you're looking for it. It's interesting. So you live like I do with your kind of, not your finger on the cultural pulse in order to sell it to Ogilvy or something, but with your your antennas out in the wind, in the atmosphere and feeling those, and it's weird, it's kind of magical, spiritual on a certain level. You can feel the change in, I call it weather, but it's like, uh, it's like the vibe has changed. Yes. I'm finding it's also a difficult place to live, especially now, though. I mean, to be sensitive to the changes in social, ambient, emotional, ideological weather kind of makes my instrument feel raw and vulnerable to just a lot of EBGB negative juju out there. That's interesting. I don't. So I did feel that way for the last like four or five years. I definitely felt that way. But now I feel like we've sort of come to a point where the pressure in the atmosphere or whatever has dropped and we can kind of get a sense of ourselves. And now I have like a very optimistic feeling of possibility. Like at the very least, if things are bad, they're interesting. I mean, a great example is the Suez Canal thing where it's like an incredibly stupid event that destroys the global trading economy. And it's interesting. Like that's an interesting issue to have. And I think more often than not now, our problems are new where it felt like during the Trump era or even before that, during like sort of the, the global populist wave, it felt like we were just rehashing shit from the 80s. And it, and now it feels mm. like we're done and we're sort of we've processed all of that and now we can move on. And the new stuff that's happening is like so complicated to, you know, the GameStop pump, NFTs, TikTok memes, like all of this stuff is what I want to be talking about because, you know, I don't want to have to read like New York Times columnists to tell me about gossip in DC. Like the cultural center of the world should not be DC, <laughs> no matter what right. happens. It can be LA, it could be New York, but it can't be DC. <laughs> I know. I mean, when I was in like young, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. started this magazine, George. Right. And that was like around the time of like Vanity Fair and details. And they thought that George would make politics like the thing. And he was kind of right. He was early, but politics did become 
the thing, yeah. this sort of new personality thing. But I, I agree. But at the same time, then I get back to my original worry that I had back when I was writing Media Virus. That so we're gonna sit here and talk about whether you know gorillas or cats make better NFTs. Mm. And there's people in Afghanistan who are like dying. There's forest fire. There are people in. I have a friend in in Denver who's having trouble breathing because of the forest fires in California. It's like, should we be doing? Is it okay? I'm asking you that you are my fucking rabbi, but is it okay for us to be sitting and playing with and talking about memes when there's people suffering and dying in real ways? Yeah. First of all, yes. I think there's <laughs> Okay, good. Unless, Thank you. Unless Thank you for being on TV Human. <laughs> unless you or someone listening can go do something about those problems. If you can, go do that. Go do that. Go go help. But right. not everyone has that ability. And also, I think What's that? What's that? That great William Gibson quote where it's like the future arrives, but not at the same time for everybody. Yeah. So it's like to me, first of all, like all of media for my life has primed me for a future in which like some people are obsessed with like digital bullshit and other people are like fighting like water wars. Like I always sort of thought we are going to this level. Right. I'm more interested in getting to like the the fifth element future where we live in like a wacky like anime world and like, you know, <laughs> we're on like a cruise ship in space. Like I want to get to that. But for now, like I, th- I think what's interesting is that like culture and the internet have been like at, at odds with each other. And so you had all these like internet subcultures, like you had like furries and you had, you know, the transhumanist movement and you had like all kinds of like different weirdos on the internet. And then you had normal culture. And over the last like two or three years, it's just done this. And now finally, we don't have to pretend that they're separate because they're one and the same. I I think the big moment that happened was Little Nas X and Old Town Road. That to me was like huh. sort of the moment where like the viral and the non-viral crossed and they'll never uncross again. And now I'm just, I feel like I have a weight off my shoulders where it's like, I don't have to like explain to people what's going on anymore. And just from like a personal level, that's exhausting to have to be like, okay, this thing I'm interested in, let's go back 10 steps. And like, you must be feeling that too, right? Oh yeah. I used to have to do it for like mystery science theater 3000 and the Simpsons and Beavis and Butthead and say, Oh, well Beavis and Butthead. I know it looks like this, but there was this guy, Marshall McLuhan, and he said this and they're outside the frame and they're looking at, you know, to then explain what, Oh, what's meta mean? Okay. Meta is like uh, something around a thing. So yeah, everything is caught up, you know, which in one way should scare us as professionals. It's like, what do we have left? Um, you know, but it, it doesn't. It's just, oh, good. There's like, I don't have to. It used to take me 200 pages to clear my fucking throat in writing a book yes. to explain everything up till now. And now everybody knows there's a status sphere. Everything's moving around laterally and mutating. And yeah. And like, we can sort of relax because like, yeah, m- we know that media and culture aren't finite. They'll never be finite again. We know that they're not static. They're always going to be changing. And I used to have like that feeling of like, okay, every time something goes viral, I've got to know about it and I've got to have my eye to the future and I've got to worry that like there might not be anything more to talk about. No, there'll always be stuff to talk about. There's no real ownership over like being first on the internet, you know, like that meme where it's like first, like that's over. So now it's more about like, what do we do with these things? And that is a much more interesting cultural landscape in my opinion. Cause like, yeah, I don't want the whole. Ah, uh, Nyan Cat was first created in 2014. Yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. 
That's true. And, you know, and as we get away from that, we get away from this sort of IP centric internet too. Yeah. You know, with everything is property and who done it. And I originated this and I copyrighted it. It's like, no, this is all just, you're just all swimming around in this shit. Yeah. You know, and that's like way more fun. As I've gotten older, that's all I think I've come to care about on the internet, which is like, is it fun? Like, is it interesting? Have I never seen this before? Okay, that's interesting. And like, kind of go in those directions. That's funny. I remember in 1994, I was interviewed when I wrote Siberia, my first book. And it was like some big interview. And there was like, oh, how do you choose this? How did you find, you know, how did you know this was going to happen? And then, you know, it was this book that was the internet. Yeah. It was canceled because they thought the internet was going to be over before the book came out. You know, so, so they thought like I had predicted the net. And I was like, I've just been looking for where people having the most fun. <laughs> and wherever that is, I want to spend time with them. And the way I'll pay back to society is write about it. Yeah. You know, and I guess that's really what sort of what you're saying. And that's really the, why not? You know, why not look for the people who are having the most fun? Because chances are they're pushing a pseudopod of this, you know, cultural amoeba in a in a new and interesting direction. Yeah. Like, so far, at least, nothing that has happened has been something, you know, I've, I've been able to sort of like kind of judge the general area we're going in, maybe like in terms of trend spotting. But for the most part, it's surprising. You know, like um, I talk about this all the time, but there is a party this kid Adrian threw. He advertised it on TikTok. 15,000 kids showed up by accident. It turned into a riot. Pe pepper spray was being shot at everybody. The, it was at Huntington Beach. It happened a couple months ago. And it's like, that's just culture now. Culture is just like a, 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 a <laughs> it's just a viral stampede of randomness. And then like the cops are going to show up. Cool. Fine. I love that. Right. Culture, it's clumpy. Like the universe. It's clumpy. Clumpy. You know? Yeah. You know, once it's not being directed from the top. You know, yeah, it gets clumpy, yeah. but that could, it'll work itself out. It's like, you know, I, I keep thinking we got to learn how to drive in traffic circles again, not just traffic lights, you know, but these weird complex. Yeah. Rotary. Collaborative yeah. systems. Yeah. It's, I, I sort of want to like replace, like after the, the end of sort of like tech utopianism, we didn't really have like a guiding philosophy of the internet. And I, I, I would love like tech pragmatism to come next. Just like, yeah, it'll, it'll figure itself out. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. we'll get there. Yeah. Well, tech pragmatism will work if there's not this sort of still as much of a crazy startup, you know, yeah. uh, manic thing. Because if those guys are the only ones who are bringing that sort of energy, they're going to they're going to lead it. But I feel like even there, that's dying down. You know, they, a lot of the young founders I find are not just trying to sell out to Sequoia. No. In fact, even with like Facebook, like I had this sort of a breaking point where I saw like Zuckerberg's metaverse project and it was a conference call with an avatar and the avatar doesn't even have legs. And I was like, this is your big idea. Like you don't have any ideas anymore, man. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, this is nothing right. like you know, this is a watered down second life. Yeah. You've, right. you, oh, congratulations. Yeah. You've made a very bad animal crossing. Congrat. Like awesome. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I know they're in the state. They have to acquire. That's their only route to innovation at this point. Yeah. And like you know, the, the top who control everything. Yeah. They control everything. And that is scary and bad, but the ideas aren't coming from there anymore. Like that sort of, I think that period's a bit, bit done. Hopefully we'll see. And it's funny. I wanted to do, I always wanted to do this podcast before this podcast. I wanted to do something called meme stream and it would just be an, we'd look at the top three, four memes of the day and just kind of hash them out. I mean, in garbage, it feels like it does that in a way. I mean, which is what you mean by garbage. I would think, what is the garbage of the day? What's cycling through this, this system? Yeah. I, well, so the name garbage day is a reference to a clip from, I think, 
the movie Trolls, where a guy yells like "Garbage Day" and it became like a meme when I was in college, and I I like thought that was funny. But then also, I did want it to feel like here's a roundup of garbage that's going to arrive on your front. You know, it's like here's a bunch of garbage because I think when you sort of approach the internet with that mentality, it's easier to to shoot up than it is to shoot down. Like it's easier to start with garbage and then like get lofty than it is to to do lofty stuff and do garbage. Oh, shit's the best fertilizer. For exactly. Sure. But it's been yeah. good. It's it's a it's one of the first times in my life as a professional like tech writer where I've been able to connect with an audience, uh, which I think was kind of a, a red pilling moment for me, as the kids would say, like where I, I learned like, oh, there are people out there on the Internet that still want to talk about this stuff and socialize and and not just like share things on Facebook. And so. That has been like great. And then like the last, uh, I mean, the, the most interesting project on the horizon, I can announce this because it will be public by the time this comes out, I assume. We're doing another meme in the moment event. Uh, and my hope is to do them a lot. That to me is the thing that's most interesting to me right now is like taking the, the conversations that we're having and finding as many people in real life to have them with as well. Because I think we've, we're all coming out of this pandemic with just like very extremely online brains and we want to talk about this stuff and yeah. there's nowhere to do that. So, you know. Yeah. And then when you do it, the funny thing is you do it in real life in a room where all these people laugh or nod and you realize, oh, right. This is actually why we like mimetic material. It's never been about the memes. Yeah. The memes are the medium through which human beings get to socialize. It's like, the way the monkey picks the nits out of the other monkey's head. Those are the memes. Those are the, it's, it's a social grooming, you know, that we do together. And uh, without that, it, it, that's why it feels so depressing and, and lonely sometimes because you find these juicy bits and juicy memes. And the only way you have of getting that reinforcement is seeing how many hearts it got, not hearing the belly laughs of people in a room. That's interesting. Yeah. The, the replacing like the sharing with one another or like the smaller internet groups that used to exist and replacing those things with hearts or likes or thumbs up or whatever it is, I think has just made people really like lonely, but they don't know they're lonely. And I feel like many people, I, I interviewed somebody recently who was like, every single person had a breakthrough moment during the pandemic. They don't they might not know it, but everyone has had like at least one big personal revelation. And I think mine has just been like the most important thing is connecting with other people and making stuff to connect with other people. Uh which is why I wanted to do stuff on the internet in the first place, you know? And it's it's nice to be able to do that and I think many people are doing that again, which it wasn't cool for a while. You know, virality was cool, not stuff for people. But I think we're in the opposite now. Well, thank you for being on Team Human and for keeping the the uh, carrying the torch, the torch forward into the next century. <laughs> thank you. I will try. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Ryan Broderick. You can find out more about him by going to garbageday.email or go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Joshua Chaptelin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.